the media is paying attention to Donald Trump. Every stupid remark will be broadcast for the next five days. Not on this show. Oh, that meteor. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the world, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and Blanketing the globe via radio sputnik five days a week i am brad friedman your friendly investigative blogger journalist troublemaker muckraker all-around swell fellow says me trying to make some sense of it all right here on the broadcast thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure uh you have probably heard this was actually a story that broke uh yesterday before we went on air and I was going to cover it, and you know what? Then I said, oh, well, there's so much other stuff that is more important that won't get out there, as opposed to this story, which will suck up the entire news cycle for the 20, next 24 hours. I'm not even going to bother it. So you probably already heard about Trump's idiotic comments on Wednesday that there, quote, there has to be some form of punishment for women who have abortions. Uh, though he had yet to determine what those uh, what that punishment would be. And then, of course, uh, he, he subsequently walked that back a few minutes later once everyone was outraged about it and said, oh, uh, no, I, I didn't mean that women should be punished. We shouldn't throw them in jail. We should throw the doctors in jail instead. Anyway, I saw that story. It was a big story at the time. I knew it was a big story at the time, but I figured, well, you know what? Everyone else is going to be talking about it. It's going to be covered everywhere because anything that Donald Trump says will be covered everywhere in the media. Meantime, we ignore the, uh, you know, the stuff that actually matters, the stuff that actually matters to us, the voters, to we, the people, to an informed electorate. And whether on purpose uh, or not, it seems like Donald Trump uh, succeeds just about every single day in sucking up the corporate media news cycle oxygen in some fashion or another by something he says or something he does or something that happens at his at his rallies. And of course, you know, the corporate media both pretend to be outraged by it all. And of course, they love it at the same time. They love it. They pretend to be outraged. 
but they love it. We talked about it. Was it earlier in uh, March, uh, Desi Doyen? Uh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hello. By the way. Uh, earlier in, in March, uh, CBS uh, CEO Les Moonves. Remember yes. what he had to say? That uh, he thinks uh, Donald Trump is great for the bottom line, and it has been for all of these media outlets who are struggling. Oh, yeah. They're getting huge ratings. Huge and ratings. And that's why CNN has basically uh, turned the Donald Trump coverage into the equivalent of when they did the wall-to-wall coverage of the poop cruise. Remember that? The poop crew. Oh yes, the poop crew. Well, the, the, the crews. They remember they did. A, they they had actual people stationed there. That's a very loaded at, at this time with Ted Cruz running with Donald Sorry, I didn't Trump. Sorry, distract you with that. The poop crews. I'm. Where are we going there? Yeah, but yes. In any event, uh, here's here's the actual <laughs> quote from uh, Les Moonves about this particular poop cruise. Uh, he said it may not be good for America. But it's damn good for CBS. He was talking about Donald Trump. Uh, he was t- talking to investors at a uh, at a conference. He said the money is rolling in, and this is fun. I've never seen anything like this, and this is going to be a very good year for us. Sorry, it's a terrible thing to say, but bring it on, Donald. Keep going. That was CBS chairman Les Moonves, who's delighted about this. Who's delighted about all of this nonsense? So, um, you know, occasionally. Very uh, occasionally, unfortunately, real concerns as opposed to the nonsense uh, coming from Trump, etc., finds its way into the corporate media coverage of the presidential race. Such was a moment on Wednesday, and it only happened. You had to watch it closely. Uh, This is Wednesday during an interview with Bernie Sanders by Rachel Maddow on MSNBC as uh, Bernie was talking about exactly this point. And then... Uh, a, a bizarre little, if slightly amusing uh, exchange actually happened between Sanders and Maddow here concerning yet another crazy statement by Trump uh, that he had recently made. And, and it was actually kind of amusing. You know, you're living in crazy world there. The media is paying attention to Donald Trump. Duh, no kidding. Once again, every stupid remark will be broadcast, you know, for the next five days. But because media is what media is today, any stupid, absurd remark made by Donald Trump becomes the story of the week. Every day he comes up with another stupid remark, absurd remark. Of course it should be mentioned. But so should Trump's overall position. How much talk can we hear about climate change, Rachel? And Trump? Any? He said that he cares more about nuclear climate change, which is a term that he's invented. Nuclear climate change? That's, his, that's, his, <laughs> right, that's what he comes up with when he's asked on the subject. I see. Which... All, right, all that I'm saying <laughs> is that Trump is, a, is nobody's fool. He knows how to manipulate the media. And you say an absurd thing and the media is all over it. <laughs> so, so even Bernie Sanders was caught off guard there by the... <laughs> he was like, what? Nuclear? What? <laughs> Which is actually something that uh, Trump had said to Washington Post in an editorial board meeting. And then he repeated the same thing to, uh, to the New York Times. This was, so I think it was over the weekend. You know, he was... His, the global warming he was worried about was nuclear global warming right uh but which even, nobody really knows what he's talking about but there. even bernie was taken back uh, taken aback by that what uh in, in any event I, i'm glad to hear uh you know bernie saying look why do we keep talking about this nonsense every fart that comes out of this guy's mouth in the ongoing poop cruise a few <laughs> days earlier uh prior to that exchange last night with maddo um 
Without the corporate media veil that uh, plays over so many of these interviews with the presidential candidates, uh, Sanders was interviewed by our friend uh, Cenk Uger over on uh, The Young Turks. A very good interview, by the way. I recommend you watch it. Uh, And in that interview, Sanders, it seemed, was able to be even more candid than usual about the failures of the corporate mainstream media. And in the bargain, he offered, uh, frankly, what I felt, uh, I don't know if you agree, Desi Doyen, but I felt it was a rather heartfelt and sincere expression of his concern, his very real concern about global warming, which is something that is almost never discussed at all. uh, Much less in this presidential election. Correct. Much less with any degree of complexity or intelligence uh, in the corporate media, which relies so heavily, by the way, Uh, on advertisements from the fossil fuel industry to stay afloat at all, which I should add, we don't rely on. We would take it. They they haven't (laughs) offered it, but uh, no, we don't we don't rely on that. But, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, they all do. They get huge amounts of huge amounts of money from the fossil fuel industry. So, of course, they don't want to go up against the fossil fuel industry all that much. But that did not come into play in this interview with uh, with Jenkin and Bernie. But here was that 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 moment that I felt was, you know, kind of heartfelt uh, from uh, from Bernie in in that interview with uh, on Young Turks. Uh, I want a vigorous effort. To address climate change. I mean, I mean, I am very worried. I mean, I talk to these scientists. This planet is in serious danger and you can't cuddle up to the fossil fuel industry. You got to take them on. Yeah, you got to take them on. And uh, yes, Bernie, I am worried, too. And yes, uh, we also talk to those scientists. Uh, Even if the mainstream corporate media can't seem to bother to do the same uh, because, you know, Donald Trump and poop cruises. (laughs) Well, yeah. So to that end, uh, we continue on this show to try. And frankly, I feel we continue to succeed. How's that for positive Uh, to focus on what is important, what you need to know about, what will hopefully make us all uh, a more informed electorate so that we can all of us do our job of participating in our own democracy and ensuring a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But that requires an educated electorate. So in a few minutes, that's a long way of saying in a few minutes, we're going to speak with Dr. Michael E. Mann of Penn State University. He's the man who invented the uh, the hockey stick, the famous hockey stick graph that was uh, seen in Al Gore's movie showing the upswing, the uptick in uh, heat along with the release of carbon. In our on our planet, am I describing oh, yes. that correctly? That's a very Des? good description. Uh, oh, thank you. Considering I never saw the movie of Al Gore's uh, Inconvenient Truth. Anyway, uh, but you know your science. But I do know my. Well, he knows his science, and uh, so we're going to talk to him about what has been absolutely freaking out climate scientists over the past month, and they're actually a pretty conservative crew, despite what you know the right wingers and Fox News likes to say about them. They're actually pretty conservative, but they are absolutely freaking out about what uh, happened recently. And uh, as far as I can tell, uh, we should all be freaking out about this, frankly. Um, even, uh, well, we would, perhaps, if Americans actually knew about it. So we're going to talk about that with uh, with Dr. Michael Mann in, uh, in a moment. In the meantime, uh, we don't cover a lot of polling here. We, again, leaving that to the uh, corporate mainstream media. But there is, a, we, we do on occasion, particularly when there is something notable. And I'm seeing something that I'm going to declare notable happening up in Wisconsin. We'll see if it's notable or not on both the Republican and the Democratic side. First, on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders now leads 
uh, Hillary Clinton by four percentage points in polling in Wisconsin, according to the Marquette University poll. This was just released on Wednesday. Marquette University Law School, a, a, a very good, well-respected poll. Now, it shows that uh, uh, Sanders now leads Clinton by five points, 49% to 45%. And uh, this is a modest but steady surge in support for Bernie Sanders over two previous iterations of this same Marquette poll. Uh, previously in, uh, let's see, in January, uh, Clinton was leading 45 to 43 and then in February, Bernie uh, edged past her barely, 44 to 43, by one point, And now he's up by five points. Now, contrast that back in November of last year in that same poll. The numbers I gave you were all from the Marquette poll. Back in November of last year, Clinton led Sanders by nine points. So the momentum has been swinging slowly but steadily in this crucial state of of, uh, of Wisconsin, clearly in uh, in Sanders' favor, at least in this Marquette poll, going from uh, you know behind nine points last November to now ahead by five points. Uh, this uh, latest poll from uh, from Marquette comes out uh, just after Sanders won a bunch of primaries in western states over the past week or so. Another pollster, however, PPP, which is a Democratic leaning firm, but a very good pollster in general. They find that Sanders is uh, sort of confirms a Marquette poll. They find Sanders up six over Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin, according to their uh, their latest survey. Uh, and that is at the same time, even as some other polls, for example, the Emerson poll here finds Clinton still up over Sanders by six points. Hmm. Overall, however, the real clear politics average for that race in Wisconsin is uh, now showing Sanders plus one, a little bit more than plus 1.3 specifically for Sanders over Hillary Clinton in Wisconsin. So that's an interesting uh, uh, move in the polls. Meanwhile, on the Republican side in that same Marquette poll, Ted Cruz now leads Donald Trump. For the first time in advance of the uh, Wisconsin state primary next Tuesday, and I should say next Tuesday, it's a primary in Wisconsin. Both Republicans and Democrats uh, will be uh, will be voting. Um, so let's see. This is 40 uh, percent of likely Republican voters in the state are now going for Ted Cruz, according to this poll, compared to 30 for Trump and 21 for John Kasich. So that's a 10 point lead of Cruz over Trump. Yeah. Wow. That never happens. Wow. <laughs> so uh, that's a, and I should add that is a very big swing from the uh, previous Marquette poll in February, showing Trump was up 30 percent to Cruz's 19 uh, percent and Kasich's 8 percent. So he had been Trump had been leading by 11 points. Now he's losing by 10. That's a 20 point swing in wow. a month. Is something going on there in Wisconsin? Uh, is something going on within the uh, Trump campaign? Have Americans finally gotten sick of that particular uh, poop cruise? We don't know, but it's something to keep an eye on. Is something happening here? Of course, all bets in Wisconsin could uh, be off, as we discussed uh, on yesterday's broadcast in some detail, because some 300,000 registered voters, already registered voters, may not be able to cast a vote at all in Wisconsin on Tuesday. Thanks to the Republican Party in Wisconsin, uh, their new photo ID law, which will be in effect for the very first time in a major election on Tuesday. 
So how that will play out, how that will play into this, nobody actually knows, particularly since the state is not spending any money Despite the requirements in this particular law, they're not spending any money to even let people know about it, to let people know what the requirements are, what kind of ID that you need. Uh, so this could be a mess. Just putting that back in your hat again, unless you in case you missed yesterday's program, I'll keep reminding you if you don't have ID, go, you know, or bring ID to the poll, find out the type of ID, not just any old ID. You need the very specific types of photo ID now allowed, now required in Wisconsin, despite the fact uh, that a federal court had found long ago that this particular law would prevent more legitimate votes from being cast than it would stop fraudulent ones. In fact, the state was unable to show any uh, fraud that this particular law would stop. So that's why I say all bets are off. Never mind those polls I just told you about. Who knows what will actually happen next Tuesday? Will this be another situation like what we saw in Phoenix a week ago, where not only did people have to wait in line for five hours in order to vote if they could afford to do so, but registrations were changed, all kinds of problems. We saw something similar in North Carolina, where they had their photo ID law in place for the first time. So, uh, you know, just once again, helping you keep your eyes on uh, what may be most important. Uh, the track conditions for these horse races are often... Uh, as determinative or more determinative to the ultimate outcome than anything else. Uh, frankly, even if those track conditions are also similarly ignored by the corporate mainstream media, which also ignores climate change and everything else. All right. Yesterday, I warned um, very quickly here. I want to get to uh, Michael Mann. But yesterday, I warned about uh, reports that New York voters are now finding themselves unregistered or you know, who had been previously registered or registered to a different party than they thought they were registered to. Uh, this in advance of New York's huge, crucial primary, which is coming up on April 19, their presidential primary. So once again, I'm telling folks, check your registrations. Don't wait until Election Day. Check your registration. And frankly, uh, if you see that you are registered, if you look it up online, take a photograph of that. And bring it with you on your cell phone <laughs> when they uh, tell you, no, we don't see you registered at all here. Yeah, and also if you if you have family or friends or grandparents especially, remind them as well to check their registration because, you know, they may not realize that they have that capacity they or where may, to do it. They may not be broadcast listeners, this uh, is in which true. case I would say, what what is wrong with those grandparents and those fam that family? <laughs> uh, so help them out. Uh, with that in mind, uh, listener Susan Schaefer writes in via the Facebooks, where you can also find me there and on the Twitters at the Brad Blog. To note another concern that has now popped up, uh, this one also in New York City, above and beyond people finding themselves suddenly unregistered or registered for a different party than they thought they were in advance of this of these primaries on April 19 in uh, in New York. Um, where, by the way, it's a closed primary, so you have to be a member of the Democratic Party if you want to vote in the Democratic primary. Or of the Republican Party, if you wanna, uh, if you wanna vote in that. Okay, this report uh, comes from the uh, from the website Who, What, Why. Apparently, tens of thousands of newly registered voters in New York City may not show up to vote at all on April 19. Why? Because of the vague wording on a postcard from the New York City Board of Elections, informing voters that, quote, the primary would be held in September. What? Yeah. 
the card concerned a different primary, not the presidential primary on April 19 in New York City, in New York State. Uh, it concerned a far less consequential one, says this uh, media outlet, to choose candidates for local and state offices, not the uh, primary that pits uh, Trump against Cruz on the Republican side and Hillary against Bernie on the Democratic side. The city's board of elections claims it is all just a case of miscommunication, the result of uh, the Empire State holding three different primaries this year. They got the presidential primary in April, a congressional primary in, uh, in June, and local and state legislative primaries on September 13 of this year year in a pre apparently what happened was in a previous communication from the new york city board of elections to newly registered voters they had given the wrong date for the september primary they said it was september 28 so then the board of elections sent out a second message to new voters reading you have recently received an approval notice the date on the notice for the prime for the primary election Oy. I know, was incorrect. The correct date is September 13, 2016. Polls will be open from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. We apologize for any inconvenience. <laughs> what about apologizing for the insane miscommunication and right. confusingness of right, that? Right, right. So oh, it was September 13 God. instead of September 28, but that's for these local elections, not for the presidential primary coming And they up. don't specify that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, the uh, the Board of Elections executive director uh, says that this is absolutely not foul play. We're not putting our thumb on the scales for anybody here. It was merely an accident. Who, what, why goes on to speculate that uh, any confusion here about the dates would end up hurting uh, the populist candidates, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, given there has been a, a huge increase in registrations. Uh, of late, uh, and some 5,000 new voters have registered uh, since December 1 of last year um, uh, in, in some other places around New York. Uh, I'm not so sure, actually, that it would help or hurt either uh, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. In the case of Bernie Sanders, you know, when you're dealing with New York City, in theory, supposedly, Hillary Clinton does better with urban voters, African-Americans and so forth. So in New York City, who knows, that could end up helping Bernie Sanders. Uh, I'm, you know, less concerned about who it helps and hurts. Candidate-wise, I'm more concerned about how it helps and hurts voters. Okay, one more story along these lines before we uh, get to a break. And then, Michael Mann, uh, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders' name is not on the primary ballot in Washington, D.C. This after the D.C. Democratic Party had submitted registration paperwork a day late for both, I, as I understand this, for both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, but a voter filed a challenge only to Bernie Sanders' name on that ballot. Uh, D.C. party officials call the issue a minor administrative dispute. The Sanders campaign, as well as the Clinton campaign, each submitted registration fees of $2,500 on time earlier this month in advance of the June 14 Democratic primary in Washington, D.C., uh, but the D.C. Democrats did not email the candidates' registration information to the D.C. Board of Election until a day after the registration deadline on March 16, according to News 4, NBC News uh, in D.C., uh, and at which time a Democratic voter filed a challenge against Sanders' campaign uh, registration. No complaint was filed against Hillary Clinton. Again, foul play? No idea. But this is what happens. Uh, we did what D.C. law requires in order to get Bernie on the ballot. 
said a Sanders campaign spokesperson to News 4. They say they are confident that he will be on the ballot. Board of Elections rules call for a hearing to be held on the challenge against the inclusion of Sanders on the ballot. That hearing is expected to occur early next week. And um, D.C. Democratic Party Chairman Anita Bond said the issue may be resolved through an emergency vote by the D.C. Council if needed. The Board of Elections could rule it was simply an administrative error and correct it. So hopefully that will be corrected. A lot of Bernie supporters were freaking out about it yesterday. Again, understandably so. Keep up the good work. Keep overseeing your own democracy. We need you to do exactly that. Uh, but be careful before you start uh, shouting, you know, election fraud and, and voter fraud. We will keep our eye on the actual evidence. All right, a quick break, and we're back with uh, Michael Mann right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Hi, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We have been talking much on this program over the last few weeks about the rather uh, incredible February temperature records that have uh, kind of blown away even climate scientists who have regarded them as shocking astronomical, staggering, uh, like something out of a science fiction film. I mean, these are the people who have <laughs> who have long been warning about uh, what is coming. Even they seem to have been surprised about what happened in February. So I want to catch up uh, on this with uh, all of the uh, noise and sturm and drong from the presidential race of late and everything else. I want to make sure that uh, that folks actually hear what it is that scientists are now really, really worried about. To join us might be one of those very worried scientists, Michael E. Mann. He is the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. He's also the author of more than 160 peer-reviewed and edited publications and the book The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars and the recently updated Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change. His most recent study, published online in the journal Nature in January with Stefan Romstorf, Byron Steinman, Martin Tingley, and Sonia K. Miller, is titled The Likelihood of Recent Record Warmth. Dr. Michael E. Mann, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Oh, thanks. It's always great to be with you guys. Uh, great to have you here. All right. The shock of climate scientists. Uh, that, I, I, as I said, may have gotten lost amid uh, this insane political season. And since, frankly, I think 
You'll tell me if I'm right or wrong, I suppose. I think it's uh, much more important than the nonsense that Trump, uh, Donald Trump and everyone else, uh, you know, is uh, is covered endlessly for saying right now uh, during this presidential season. Therefore, I wanted to have you on to help make sure we heard what actually happened. So and what seems to have alarmed so many scientists. Can you give us a, a quick summary of that and then we can get into some of the uh, specific details here? Sure. So, you know, we know that this you know, last year was the warmest year on record, mm-hmm. and the year before that previously had been the warmest record. So we've broken the record for the warmest year on, you know, that the globe has seen two years consecutively. And uh, part of that warmth is uh, related to a very large El Nino event, which has emerged. Uh, but the El Nino basically just boosted the warmth a, a little bit above what it otherwise would have been. So, you know, you've got global warming mm-hmm. that continues to happen. The globe continues to warm. You've got a big El Nino event on top of that. And when those two things come together, you get unprecedented warmth. And we had seen that now for two years. Um, what was surprising to us, we uh, expected that warmth to start to subside as this uh, El Nino event begins to dissipate. But instead, the February numbers came in, and not only uh, were, did we not see a cooling off, um, we saw unprecedented warmth. It was the warmest, uh, depart- it was the largest departure from the average for a given month mm-hmm. that we've ever seen, and it was the warmest February uh, on record. And what was so surprising was just the magnitude of, of that warmth. Um, basically taking us in now to the territory of more than two degrees Celsius warming. So we've long talked about how uh, a warming of more than two degrees Celsius, three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, um, many scientists feel constitutes uh, truly dangerous, uh, potentially irreversible uh, interference with Earth's climate. And we're still uh, on track um, for the globe to uh, exceed that uh, mm-hmm. permanently in a matter of decades. What we didn't expect was that we would actually cross that threshold so soon. Now, that's just a month, mm-hmm. and it's just a, a fluctuation, and, and some of that is noise. Uh, some of that is just the internal random variability of the climate. Uh, but it's still telling us something. For the first time, we have now exceeded that threshold. And if we continue on the course that we're on, we continue to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, continue to warm the planet, then we will be above that threshold permanently. So this is a warning sign. This is a warning telling us we are dangerously close now to that 2 degrees Celsius, 3.5 degree Fahrenheit dangerous level of warming. Uh, climate scientist Jessica Blunden at uh, NOAA the, uh, said that the departures from the normal would be what we consider astronomical in February. She says it's on land, oceans in the upper atmosphere, in the lower atmosphere. The Arctic has recorded, uh, uh, has record low sea ice. She said everything everywhere is a record in February, except for Antarctica. She says in the Arctic, where sea ice uh, reached a record low for February, land temperatures averaged eight degrees above normal. That's four and a half degrees Celsius. So I I know that's only one part of the world. But when we're talking about a, a, a target of, you know, trying to not go over two degrees Celsius, this just seems to blow it away. And she adds that that was after January when Arctic land temperatures were ten and a half degrees above normal. This uh I mean, it it seems to be extraordinary, uh, even, uh, you know, when I talk to folks like you, Michael Mann, um, 
it's just too early to know if this is uh, what you might describe as a blip, just a noise, signal noise as you describe it. Uh, we have to wait and see the next few months, how those play out before we can see if something ex- really extraordinary is now happening? Yeah, well, that, that's true. And yet, you know, this, this unprecedented warm month mm-hmm. was really a combination. It was a combination of perhaps some of that noise you're talking about, just the vagaries of weather, mm-hmm. internal natural fluctuations, uh, on top of an ever-increasing uh, baseline of warmth as we continue to warm the planet. And so when we cross these thresholds, uh, what it's telling us is we're venturing into new territory. And, and, and the fact that we're venturing into new territory where we can now cross the two degrees Celsius warming mark at least for a month, um, that, that's new. That wasn't true in the past. And, and the reason we're crossing into that territory where it's possible to see that level of warmth is because of human-caused climate change. Is there a chance that the uh, the measurements literally are somehow wrong? Uh, Georgia Tech climate scientist Kim Cobb uh, said about the February temperatures that I feel like I'm looking at something out of a sci-fi movie. In yeah. a way, we are. She says it's like someone plucked a value off of a graph from 2030 when you know yeah. these temperatures might be expected and, and stuck them onto the present uh, temperatures. Is there any possibility that uh, the numbers are somehow <laughs> simply wrong? Right. Maybe we accidentally took a, took a temperature from February 2030 <laughs> from a, a climate model simulation. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this is, think of this as this is an animal, and we've stuck the thermometer everywhere we can possibly stick it to <laughs> right. that animal. And, <laughs> and it's come out with the same reading. Um, that's literally what the climate science community is doing. We, we measure Earth's temperature in every conceivable way, the ocean uh, surface. We have buoys. Uh, we also have these um, submersible um, uh, uh, devices where we can measure temperatures down into the ocean. Uh, we measure temperatures in the atmosphere, the lowest, the lower atmosphere, the upper atmosphere with weather balloons. We've got satellites measuring temperatures vertically through the atmosphere. We are measuring these things now in so many different ways mm-hmm. that it's virtually impossible for us to be uh, that far off. Now, that having been said, you have different groups mm-hmm. that um, calculate these global temperature averages, and uh, they do it different ways. Um, uh, they, they, what they, some of them, uh, so there are gaps in the data, mm-hmm. and uh, those gaps uh, have to be treated in some way. Uh, and some groups will interpolate between them. Others will just not use the regions where there isn't data. And you get slightly different answers depending on how, what you assume about the missing data, for example. But you know, that's down in the noise. The, the uncertainties due to those sorts of um, uh, data issues are, are, are minimal compared to the size of the temperature departures that we're seeing. Uh, Mike, this is uh, Brad's producer and his co-host on the Green News Report, Desi Doyen. Hi. Um, yes, wanted hi. to jump in really quick and ask you a question. You know, you said that, we, that this departure, you know, it's just one month for the moment. But a few years ago, you published a study that projected about when the United States would sort of step into the new regime. And I wanted to know if, if this, uh, if you could just sort of describe, summarize really quickly what those findings were that you had. And does this new information change your projections at all? Yeah, so um, we, we had an article in Scientific American a couple years ago, um, uh, which was looking at the issue of dangerous interference with the climate, that two degrees Celsius warming, and when do we hit that level uh, given sort of current rates of uh, fossil fuel burning and, and carbon emissions and sort of projected future emissions. And right. what we showed 
was that um, we, we would hit that, you know, that, that two-degree mark in a matter of a couple decades, uh, given business as usual, burning of fossil fuels. Now, we were looking at basically when is the Earth sort of permanently above that threshold. So in other words, not just for a month, mm-hmm. not just for a year, but we're above it all the time. And I'll give you an analogy. Um, uh, atmospheric CO2 levels um, were, you know, when I started graduate school, I think there were 370-something. By the time I graduated, they were 380-something. Um, they're increasing by, you know, two or three uh, every year, parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. So we lose it, it, it just it, when we think we know what the CO2 level is, we check, and it's gone up. And right. so it's been climbing and climbing. And a few years ago, it was getting very close to 400 parts per million. And now uh, we're over is, it. Now we're over 400 parts per million. Yeah, and here's how we first crossed it. Um, the average level was 397 or 98 or so, but there's a seasonal fluctuation. And what happened was, for the first time, the peak of that seasonal fluctuation momentarily brought us above 400. Then we came back down. And now we're permanently above 400, even at the very depth when that seasonal fluctuation gets to its lowest value now, we're still above 400. And so that's what we're going to see with warming as well. Right now, for the first time ever, for a month, we crossed 2 degrees Celsius warmth relative to pre-industrial. If we continue on this course, then what our study told us, uh, what our study indicated, was that in a couple decades, um, two to three decades, Uh, we will be permanently above that level. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Michael E. Mann of uh, of Pennsylvania State University. Uh, Michael, there was a a study from the uh, University of Hawaii that I want to ask you about, and it sort of relates to this. Uh, It it was recently written about in the Washington Post, and frankly, it kind of blows me away. This uh, this question will sort of get us uh, towards that study in a moment, but as as you talk about, uh, CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a very, very long time long time once it's released via the burning of fossil fuels, etc. At what point uh, and when does it become too late to change the course that we are on? I realize that it's never too late to take action. We've always got to do what we what we can here. But when do we get to the point as the uh, uh, scientists best understand it now, that, uh, you know, even if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, there would still be so much CO2 in the atmosphere baked in the cake, uh, so to speak, as you guys described it, that even halting all emissions could no longer turn back the melting of this Arctic sea ice, the devastating sea uh, level rise, and so forth. It, it is that point in the near future? Has that been identified by scientists when it's just too late to turn back the clock, period? Well, you know, there's no one cliff that we walk off. It isn't like at two degrees warming mm-hmm. Celsius, three and a half Fahrenheit warming, we, we walk off a climate cliff and everything, you know, every possible negative impact uh, happens simultaneously. It's much more like a uh, gradually, increasingly mm-hmm. uh, steep um, Downslope, and the farther we go, uh, the, the 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 farther you know, the faster we descend. But but I mean to say, Mike. But I yep. mean to say, Mike. W- once that carbon is in the atmosphere, th- you know that. Th- yep. Then we stop, you know, burning any. We stop putting any additional carbon into the atmosphere. But there is already so much in the atmosphere that uh, nothing will stop what the planet wants to do at that point. Yeah. Is that a concern? 
Yeah, so there are a couple things going on. Uh, there's first of all the question of you know, how much warming does it take to trigger certain things that we don't want to see happen, the melting of the Greenland ice sheet, the melting of the West Antarctic mm-hmm. ice sheet, um, and, and so on down the line. Um, then the question becomes, okay, well, when is it that we truly commit to that level of warming? And there has, there's a little bit of good news, <laughs> um, I'll frankly, take it. I'll uh, take it. from the scientific perspective here which is to say um, studies over the past few years have shown that it isn't quite as bleak as we once thought. We used to think that we were committed to some additional amount of warming, that if we stopped emitting the carbon into the atmosphere today, mm-hmm. the Earth would continue to warm for decades as it comes to a new equilibrium, as it slowly adjusts to the CO2 we've already put into the atmosphere. Uh-huh. And some of it has the potential to come back out, depending on what the oceans are doing, uh-huh. depending on what the terrestrial biosphere is doing. And here's the good news. You know, if we stopped emitting now, yeah. then the Earth would continue to warm up to, to some extent because of the CO2 that we've already put in the atmosphere. But at the same time, when we halt putting CO2 into the atmosphere abruptly, it, it, it creates a very large deficit between um, the, the CO2 in the atmosphere and the CO2 that's in the ocean. Uh-huh. And the ocean tries to suck up some of that excess CO2. So the oceans would actually start taking some of that CO2 back out of the atmosphere. Uh, CO2 levels would actually come down a bit. And here's the remarkable thing, is that these two effects essentially cancel. The committed warming is almost perfectly offset by the drawdown of CO2 out of the atmosphere uh, once we stop emitting um, and the lowering of CO2 in the atmosphere that results from that. And the important implication is that we have much more control over the climate. If we were to stop emitting right now, we could actually prevent future warming. Now, this is still somewhat tentative, but the studies are definitely pointing in this direction now. So there's a bit of a change in the perspective we have about this so-called uh, commitment to warming. Um, we, 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 the, the latest science suggests that we do have more control um, over what happens in the future uh, based on what we do now. Well, that that is encouraging. In other words, it sounds like the planet may be able to save us from ourselves, but that also requires that we stop releasing uh, the CO2 at some point, and that fight continues. And looking at this study from uh, Nature uh, Geoscience it, that uh, Chris Mooney wrote about recently in the Washington Post with the headline, yeah. What We're Doing to the Earth Has No Parallel in 66 Million Years, scientists say. Mooney writes that if you dig deep enough into the Earth's climate change archives, you hear about the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, if I'm pronouncing that right. They call it PETM. And then he says you get scared. He says this is a time period about 56 million years ago when something mysterious happened. There's many ideas as to what uh, that suddenly caused concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to spike far higher, far higher than they are right now. And I think this is something that we hear politicians talk about. Oh, well, it used to be there used to be much more CO2 in, uh, you know, in the atmosphere. So why worry? Uh, In any event, here's why I worry. Uh, The planet proceeded to warm rapidly, at least in geological terms, and major major die-offs occurred with the marine organisms. The cause uh, of the PETM is debated, but it was an explosion of uh, carbon from something, either thawing Arctic permafrost, uh, volcanoes, and so forth. However... And here's where, to to me, gets uh, disturbing. So the result was 
from pole to pole, the d- temperatures raise five degrees Celsius warmer overall. Um, and now scientists find that the amount of carbon that was released during that period was less than we are releasing now. They estimate that, uh, where's this number here? Ten uh, times, I think it was. Well, We're yeah, releasing it, ten times the amount that was released during that period yeah, of time. Yeah, over the, here we go, over 4,000 years this happened. Yep. So this was only yep. about one billion tons of carbon uh, emitted per year, and now we are emitting 10 billion tons of of carbon annually. We're changing the planet more rapidly than we were in this remarkable PETM event. Yeah, that's right. I mean, think about you can think about it as a, a medical experiment where, you know, um, there was a, a dose was given to mm-hmm. a set of patients and um, and that dose led to, you know, near death. The, the biosphere nearly died in the sense that we had mass extinctions mm-hmm. uh, during the PETM. So that was for um, a dose of one you know, one unit. And what right. we're doing now is we're giving the patient 10 times that dose and, um, and to expect that we're not going to see similarly bad things happen as a result uh, would be foolhardy. I mean, we are literally hitting the system harder than nature, to our knowledge, than nature has ever hit it. And, and some bad things have happened even during periods like the PETM where the changes were much slower and, and the net uh, input of carbon was smaller, and yet um, we saw widespread uh, extinction. That is a warning sign for certain. And, and it's the PETM and other events like that in our deep geological past mm-hmm. that keep many of us climate scientists up at night uh, when we start to worry about some of the potential surprises that are in store, things that we didn't expect, that we didn't plan for, that the models didn't predict that could well uh, unfold. Michael Mann, what do you think when you watch, uh, I had mentioned the the presidential uh, election season that we are smack dab in the middle of, what what do you think when you watch these... uh, these presidential debates and you've got, uh, you know, even the not insane candidates like uh, Marco Rubio and John Kasich, uh, you know, we're talking about, of course, climate is changing. Climate is always changing and we can't pass a law to control the weather and the globe may be warming. But, you know, we, we don't know how much of this is caused by man. Therefore, it's unwise to take any action that we don't know if it'll make any difference. And and of course, the old chestnut uh, favorite. Well, I'm not a scientist. I know I get maddened. When I watch that, I can only imagine what you must be thinking. <laughs> what are you thinking when you when you see that unfold? Well, yeah, and a, lo- a lot of that is pandering. Um, some of these folks are smart enough to know what's going on, and frankly, my my view is that that they know full well um, that climate change is real and that it represents a threat. But they also know that they can't get nominated um, in a in a party. Uh, that has a um, platform that has written into it the denial of climate change uh, and where um, the primary source of funding is dark money from uh, polluters like mm-hmm. the Koch brothers. Um, so you see a lot of pandering to the Koch brothers, uh, particularly with, um, uh, with with Cruz, with Ted Cruz, who's yeah. clearly making a play. If you saw his, uh, you know, the, the speech he gave after the last primary um, it was almost like he was speaking directly to the Koch brothers. Fund sure. me. I will advance your uh, agenda of uh, inaction on climate change, of uh, uh, opposing any regulation of carbon emissions. Um, so I think there's some bad faith involved. I don't think it's just uh, naivety. Uh, I don't think it's just ignorance. Uh, I think some of it is willful ignorance. Um, 
I was disappointed. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, John Kasich uh, was quoted, I think it was a, some sort of town hall event he uh-huh. had done um, uh, somewhere in, in New England, uh, maybe it was in New Hampshire, uh-huh. uh, I think it was Connecticut, um, and, and he had said some extremely reasonable things. What he had said about climate change and the need to, uh, to turn to renewable energy, um, you know, he sounded like he could, you know, he, would, he, he, he his views sounded indistinguishable, say, from Barack Obama's. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, a week or two later, I read a statement by him in another speech, uh, in a, you know, or a, mm-hmm. another event that he's done, where he is indeed, you know, engaged in, in, in some form of denial of the problem. And as you know, there are different forms of denial. Yes. There's the denial that the climate is changing. There's the denial that is due to us. Uh, there's the denial that um, it's a problem, even if it is changing, and it is due to us. Um, right. And so, what you see uh, sometimes is these contrarians, climate change deniers, sort of slowly walk down that ladder of denial, but they never get down to the bottom. They're still in denial uh, of some form, and and that's the bottom line, right? In the end, to advance an agenda of policy and action, they don't have to necessarily deny the science. They just have to find some justification for the conclusion that we shouldn't regulate carbon emissions. And how they come up with that conclusion can, uh, uh, you know, occur through any combination of, of uh, denial. Well, when when I see that uh, stuff play out, you know, one one part of me, you know, I, we see the denial. Finally, you know, they're asked a question in a presidential debate about climate change. Yay. Uh, and then they respond and it's completely, you know, denialist nonsense. But uh, so that's disappointing. But on the other hand, I think, well, OK, great. This is at least a chance uh, for the corporate media to fact check that response <laughs> and to clarify, uh, d- you know, the, I'm sure they'll call uh, Dr. Michael Mann and, and get his uh, take to explain. So uh, do you see that uh, media coverage taking place in an event like that? Or are we uh, or is our uh, corporate media still failing us uh, in this regard, still failing to report the reality in responses uh, to some of those crazy responses from the the, the Rubios and the Kasichs, never mind the Cruises and the Trumps. Yeah, so, you know, uh, to some extent, the um, the television media are disappointing in, in that regard and that you don't generally uh, see uh, commentators um, really uh, taking to task some of the anti-scientific statements that have been made by the candidates, certainly not to the extent um, that... Uh, that those statements merit. Um, on the other hand, you do have other institutions within our media. Uh, factcheck.org has been doing a pretty good job of fact-checking, mm-hmm. fact, mm-hmm. fact-checking uh, the, the climate change, um, uh, you know, the statements about climate change by mm-hmm. various candidates, and some of the other fact-checking organizations have sort of been on it and have done a decent job of that. Um, uh, PolitiFact, I think. Uh, then uh, you have, you know, some uh, writers uh, like uh, Seth Bornstein, mm-hmm. Bornstein and his colleagues at AP right. did, a, did a great article, uh, I, don't know, I think it was a couple months ago, where they took all the statements that had been made by the various candidates, and at that point there were like, what, 14 or 15 of them, right? Right. And um, uh, that they had made about climate change uh, over the years and blindly asked various climate scientists to rate those statements in terms of how, <laughs> you know, defensible they are. Um, and this was done, like I said, blind, so the scientists didn't know which candidates had made those statements, um, and they polled uh, a, a large group of scientists. They sort of took the... Uh, the composite uh, mm-hmm. from all those polls and rated the uh, rated the different uh, candidates. The only Republican who got a passing grade was um, was uh, Bush at that time. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, interestingly, Bernie Sanders 
um, got uh, no. Uh, in fact, interestingly, uh, Hillary Clinton rated the highest, and Bernie Sanders came in a little bit below Clinton. Both got very good marks, mm-hmm. but Clinton actually came out ahead. And like I said, all but one Republican flunked. Well, y- you know, when you read the, uh, when you actually bother to read the science and read the stories, like this uh, Chris Mooney piece, uh, you know, that the Earth has seen no parallel to what is going on in 66 yeah. million years, that we are blowing away, uh, even that remarkable release of uh, uh, of carbon in the uh, in the PETM. Uh, that that ended up lasting, uh, by the way, that warming event ended up lasting over 100,000 years. And now we are outdoing that when you see that. And then side by side with a study from uh, that I know you commented on over at uh, Media Matters on the network coverage of yeah. climate change on the TV f- actually fell. I didn't know there was anywhere that it could fall from. It was already <laughs> so low. Uh, in 2015, uh, they described it as a travesty. Um, I mean, I-, I don't know that it can get much worse, but I'm glad to hear that at least there are print journalists still out there still doing their job. I, I wish the the broadcast media was... Uh, was doing it was following up with their part of the bargain frankly you know that that's right and uh, i have to say um you know msnbc was doing a great job in covering this issue and they've got a number of commentators um a number of mm-hmm. uh, uh of folks um uh, uh there who who really have gone out of their way to um to to, to bring coverage of uh, climate change uh, to their programming um and over the last year or so we've we've seen some of it's anecdotal. I used to go on MSNBC a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't get as many calls now. Uh, but, you know, in watching them, uh, they don't have nearly as much uh, coverage uh, as they did. And, you know, some of that, I guess, has to do with the, the shakeup in personalities um, that's happened there over the last year. Um, but they're sort of, they were a paragon. You know, at, at, there, there was a time a year, two years ago, three years ago, where you could point to MSNBC as leading the way in demonstrating how um, a, a network can responsibly and you know and comprehensively cover uh, the climate issue, and unfortunately, they they seem to have um, moved in the wrong direction over the last year or two. Well, as they were moving in the wrong direction, uh, you'll be happy to know they're still talking about the climate on MSNBC. It's just in the commercials for natural gas and <laughs> fracking uh, that play between you know every commercial break during the debates, everything else. I'm an energy You're not voter. You're suggesting a causal relationship there. Are I'm you? not suggesting anything. I'm just reporting the facts, Doctor Man. Uh, Michael E. Man. He is the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University and author of the books The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars and Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change. Michael Mann, uh, always great to talk to you, my friend. Oh, and people should follow you you. on the Twitters at Michael E. (laughs) Mann. Uh, Thanks, Mike. Uh, Really appreciate you you checking in. We'll, we'll, We'll do it again soon, I suspect. Thank you. It was great talking with you, Aunt Desi. All right. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, sir. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Electric car on roads so dark To change the end, rewrite the start Electric car, so good so far. I love that song. Great song. Electric 
Welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, electric cars, yeah, that might help. Uh, we've only got a minute or two here, so I'll do this quickly, uh, Des. But early adopters of Tesla Motor Inc.'s new electric car, the Model 3, according to Bloomberg, are queuing up outside showrooms around the world on Thursday. This is in, in advance of the reveal of Tesla's new uh, Model 3, the, what is it, the $35,000 uh, electric car that's about to come out from Tesla. Uh, this follows the Model S, which was like a $70,000 car. And everybody's really excited about this because this could be the thing. This I know. could be the well, turning point. I think this is the turning point. We'll see. Uh, but they are now lining up for this new Tesla the way they're lining up for, you know, the Apple iPhone, which is kind of really cool. Some fans even camped out overnight to be the first in line to pay a thousand dollar deposit for a car that will have its public debut uh, on Thursday evening. But the actual car will not uh, come out for another 18 months. <laughs> uh, lines all over the place, all over the world. Uh, the first buyers were able to make deposits on the Model 3, stood in line in uh Cloudless skies in Australia, as Bloomberg reports. In Montreal, a downpour wasn't enough to deter Tesla diehards in Brooklyn's Red Hook neighborhood. Yeah. Outside of a Tesla showroom there, a man camped overnight to be the first in line. In Short Hills, New Jersey, more than 200 people snaked through the halls waiting for their turn to pay for this car that they don't get for another 18 months, at least if Tesla is even on time. In Bellevue, California, same thing happened in Austin, in Denver, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. No, they weren't lining up to vote. They were lining up for the Tesla in this case. <laughs> in Zurich, Switzerland, in Seattle. Uh, so all very cool. Uh, going to be uh, an event on uh, on Thursday night revealing at least part of the Model 3, says uh, Tesla CEO Elon Musk. He says uh, part one of the Model 3 unveil on Thursday. Part two, which takes things to another level, will be closer to production. So it's a tease. We don't know. But hey, uh, this could really be, we will see. We've been talking about it for a while. We've been saying nice things about Tesla in hopes that they would give us a free one. Not yet. Has it worked? <laughs> but uh, anyway, this could be the thing. We will see. Very exciting. Glad to see people lining up for it the way they line up for iPhones. Now lining up for electric cars. About time. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and, of course, to Dr. Michael Mann of Penn State. And my thanks, as always, to you, the listeners, for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, including that interview with Michael Mann, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or at iTunes. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. We'll be w uh, back with you again soon. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.